0: Welcome, Glenn Lowry. It's good to have you on the show.
1: Oh, thank you. Uh, very good to be with you, Elon.
0: Let me just introduce you to our audience. So, your Professor Lowry is the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of the Social Sciences at Brown University, and before that, he's taught at Harvard, Boston University, Northwestern Universities, and the University of Michigan. He's a holds a PhD in economics, and he's a, uh, has a show called "The Glenn Show" at Bloggingheads TV with his colleague John McQuarter. Uh, so. Uh, Glenn is a very prominent social critic and a public intellectual. He's written on the themes of racial inequality and social policy and has numerous, numerous publications, uh, 200 essays plus, and he's a, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He's written for the New Republic for many years. Uh, and some of his works deal directly with race in America and racial inequality. And so the reason I wanted to talk to you, Glenn, is I'm really interested in your approach to the debate we have right now in America or the conversation over race. And you've been really critical of what's come to be described as the woke culture and the prevailing view of how to understand the fight against racism. So I want to get us understanding just to kind of set the context. Um, What's your assessment of the state of racism? How bad is it? Have you seen, do you think there has been progress made? Because um, I know there are people who, whose view is, no, we're just it's just as bad as it was 50, 60 years ago. Um, things are really, uh, th- there are barriers in every direction.
1: Oh, no, I think that is quite wrong. Um, and I think in fact, the currency that this kind of expression Things haven't changed. Uh, The police are lynching Black men on the streets of American cities. Uh, White supremacy rules supreme. The basic story of America is about the contempt for the Black body, et cetera. I think the very fact that such arguments in National Book Awards and Pulitzer Prizes and attract the attention of enlightened faculty members at elite universities and sweep the, 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 the board uh, in terms of cultural conflict at the, t- at the highest level of American society proves that that position is wrong. <laughs> its success is, in fact, its refutation. Uh, a society as committed to racial hierarchy with such contempt for Black people wouldn't honor Uh, the Black people who remind the society of its contempt for them to the extent that it does, if indeed that contempt were actually operative. I hope that sentence was comprehensible. It it seems to me that there's a kind of contradiction in the very logic of woke uh, racial uh, rhetoric, which is that on the one hand, it defines the white, overbearing, uh, hegemonic forces as intrinsically racist, But on the other hand, it directs its appeals and its arguments to those very forces and, moreover, finds itself amplified in that argument by the grounding institutions, like American elite capitalism, which capitulates to the woke sensibility of Black Lives Matter in a heartbeat, or like the editorial boards of The Washington Post and The New York Times and other places, which embrace the woke sensibility unreservedly. So um, just that as a matter of logic, I I see that there are problems there. But I also think as a matter of social science, uh, there are problems there. Look, there are, of course, problems in American society of race and racial inequality and racial discrimination. But the difference between the America of 2020 and the America of 1950 or 1970 or even 1990 is monumental. Uh, There has been, I think, in the last 75 years here in the United States, a transformation in the status of African-Americans from explicit second-class citizenship, where large swaths of the country prevented people from even being able to cast the ballot, where the typical occupation for an African-American man was farm laborer, I'm talking about within the 20th century, and the typical occupation for an African-American woman was domestic servant, a transformation to where you have now here in the United States of America on the North American continent, the largest, most powerful, richest population of African descent, not the largest in absolute numbers, but the most powerful and impactful population of African descent on the planet. I mean, there are five times as many Nigerians, almost 200 million, as there are African-Americans. And yet the amount of income if African Americans get 10% of the $20 trillion national income of America, is already twice as great as the total GNP of of the state of Nigeria. We're very rich and very powerful Black people. We set the tone culturally in athletics and entertainment, et cetera. I could go on for a long time about this. So there are issues. There are certainly issues. But the basic course of the status of black people in the united states over the course of the last 75 years uh, is an upward trend and i see no reason to forecast that that's going to uh, that that's going to stop
0: so i wanted to dig into some of the the issues and some of the challenges that face uh, african americans today in our society so i want so what i've been interested in your approach to this is as a social scientist so you look at the data and you're interested in the sort of what can we know from the facts so when you hear things about um, this idea of over-incarceration, so the, the fact that's presented that, I think this is the fact that uh, there are more Blacks in prison than there are sort of disproportionate to their number in the population. Um, when you hear things like um, the criminal justice systems, the sort of the way the sentencing works um a lot of people are in prison for non-violent drug offenses, which sort of is, seems to skew in a certain direction, ratio, or, or if even things like, um, in, in schools, um, black students are suspended or punished more often or, or sort of disproportionately to their number in their, I'm throwing a lot of things at you, but I just want to get a sense for how do you approach those kinds of things? When you, as a sort of analytical approach? What do you look at? What questions do you see? How do you interpret those kinds of claims?
1: Um, so what I've been saying of late, and I've addressed myself specifically to issues of over-incarceration and school discipline as it happens, is that whereas in mid-20th century, my reflexive reaction to seeing disparity statistics of that sort would be, oh my God, look at the magnitude of the mistreatment and the discriminatory treatment of African-Americans. There is bias in the system, I would say. The police are arresting Black people for crimes that they allow white people to commit uh, with indifference. The sentences that Black people get when convicted of a crime are longer by an order of magnitude than the sentences that white people get when convicted of the same crime. That would have been my reflex, talking about mid-20th century. Kids getting suspended in school, my instinctual reaction to that reality would be look how the teachers are unable to handle African American youngsters in a classroom and repair to suspension as the response to disruptive behavior. Whereas for white kids, uh, they look the other way or they give a second chance or they're more empathetic and uh, understanding and so forth. I would have attributed those disparities to bias. I would have looked at the universities and seen very few Blacks sitting in them in the mid 20th century. And I would have been correct, I think, historically in attributing those disparities to bias. Today, in the year 2020, a half century after the height of the civil rights movement, with one after another after another law on the books prohibiting the very discrimination which was commonplace at mid 20th century, with affirmative action, inclusion, belonging, equity, and diversity being the mantra uh, incanted by uh, uh, administrators of uh, large corporate organizations or uh, prestigious institutions of higher education or government bodies and whatnot. Today, in the year 2020, the bias claim simply doesn't hold water. It's just not factually accurate. You say that there are more Black men in prison per numbers in the population. That's true. However, you say they're mostly there for nonviolent drug offenses, and that's false. They're mostly there for violent offenses, and for weapons uh, offenses, and for property crimes, and for assault, and for robbery, and for burglary, and for car theft, and et cetera. They're mostly there because they are a menace to their neighbors and to society, not because they're Black, but because they behave in ways that are uh, disruptive of the civil order. Uh, The American prison system is too big. I've written a book about this, Race, Incarceration, and American Values, published in 2008. I advocated very strongly that our sentences are too long for everybody, uh, and that the racial disparity in the incidence of punishment is a first-order problem regardless of whether or not it is a reflection of bias in the criminal justice system. That's what I believe. I think that we could learn a lot from Northern Europe and how it is that we deal with these problems in our population, regardless of the color of the people who may be creating a problem. But uh, the idea that uh, a a conflict between a a black person who resists arrest on a city street in an American city uh, and a police officer who's trying to arrest him that ends up in the loss of the life of that black person is of course very, very regrettable. And often the police officer may be at fault and should be held accountable for that. But the idea that that's the functional equivalent now in today's time in America to a lynching of a black person on a dusty Southern road somewhere in Georgia or Mississippi or Alabama in 1950 or 1930 is absurd. The, the, that idea is simply disconnected in my opinion from reality, the idea that the Asian student body at Harvard University is as large as it is and different standards, lower standards, have to be used to solicit, uh, to incorporate African Americans into that student body today in 2020, that that's somehow a reflection of bias, bias of the institution being unwelcoming, bias of the instruments of assessment, like the tests that are given to students, what is absurd. What that disparity at Harvard, or in the jails of America, or in the schoolrooms where kids are getting suspended is a reflection of, are racial differences in the development of the human potential of these respective populations, not bias in the structures of the system in which we are all embedded. So that's my main response to you, that the focus today should be on enhancing the capacities. First of all, recognizing the deficit in performance not covering it up or making excuses like, oh, there are too many Blacks in prison because of the drug laws. That, that is uh, superficially, and with respect, uh, inaccurate assessment of the, uh, of the circumstances. So we have, first of all, to be in touch with reality. We have to recognize that if Black kids are getting suspended at three times the rate, and that's actually the number as white kids in high schools and uh, primary schools in the United States, it's because they come into the classroom more frequently with disruptive behavior reflecting undoubtedly, the inadequacy of the processes of socialization that they experienced in their home and in their communities, um, which uh, left them emotionally and behaviorally ill-equipped to effectively enter into the enterprise which the school is trying to undertake. This is not every kid by any means. This is not every kid. But it'll be a higher rate of phenomenon in the Black population. And that's telling us something about what's going on outside of the school, I, I want to say. So the development imperative, the history of racism and exclusion objectively diminished the structures of nurturance and uh, human development, which foster the uh, performance more or less effectively of African-Americans in society. That's true. So if we're looking for the ultimate source of the disparities in behavior that I'm calling attention to, I would put that on history exclusion and racism. So I'm not letting whites, as it were, off the hook in that respect. But at the end of the day, raising one's children is something that no one else can do uh, for a community. And the task, the decades-long historical imperative of addressing and then overcoming the consequences of this history of exclusion falls very heavily on the shoulders of uh, African-Americans ourselves. So uh, that's my orientation. My orientation is take responsibility for behavioral problems in our population that manifest themselves in terms of these disparities and get to work addressing those problems. One, as a community, African-Americans in the United States oughtn't to be left alone to one's own devices in pursuing that project. One, I think, legitimately should anticipate and expect and demand indeed the support and the engagement of society as a whole with respect to that important human developmental task. But at the end of the day, if we don't address the developmental imperative, we're going to be having the same conversation in 30 or 40 or 50 years, except that there will be a less sympathetic majority in the country to hear these complaints uh, because everybody else will have moved on.
2: Alon, can I jump in and ask a follow-up question on that? So Thomas Sowell talks a lot about Harlem in the 50s when uh, he's growing up, and then a change in the Black community. And how, how do you think about that? I mean, if you agree with that there's some change in it sort of culturally, ideologically, that's having an impact on parenting and development how do you think of that, and what role do you think, if any, the government programs played the great society and the, and the poverty? Pro, I mean, supposedly anti-poverty programs played in that development and in that change. If there, is, if you think of it, as a change. I have great
1: respect for Thomas. O. He's a great man. Um, I even sometimes, for entertainment, look up some of these old videos of conversations that he's held on YouTube and just mm-hmm. listen because he. He's a great uh, economist, a great social critic, social philosopher, a very important voice in our time. And I think history will remember him much more kindly than many of his contemporaries have done. Uh, So I'll say that. Now, he believes that the, uh, the welfare state created a set of incentives, as I understand him, that ultimately led to the undermining of the Uh, supportive structures of civil society within African-American culture that had developed under segregation out of necessity since blacks were separated and excluded and uh, not allowed to enter into many venues of American society. And he thinks, I think correctly, I think as a matter of historical description, this is absolutely accurate, that the black family was stronger in 1950 than it is today that the aut- autonomy of African Americans in the professions, in small business, and whatnot—the the sense of a kind of I'm not waiting for somebody to come and fix this problem for us—I'm going to fix it myself—was healthier, and I think that that's true. Uh, I, I think one has to take, and this is not only Tom Soul, this is Charles Murray losing ground, in 1984, if I get the date correct in the publication of that book. I think Charles Murray has to be given uh, due uh, due credit and basically arguing that if you look carefully at what happened as a consequence of efforts to solve poverty and expand the great society, expand the footprint of, of governmental assistance so as to uh, abet the uh, project of including people at the bottom, that it backfired in many ways. It created bad incentives. It led to the dissolution of families. It uh, sapped people's work initiative. It it, uh, it was, on the whole, not a good move. I think there's a lot to be said for that. It's not the only thing that's going on, though. Um, uh, William Julius Wilson, the sociologist at Harvard, uh, uh, in his book, The Truly Disadvantaged, makes an important observation about how the composition of these neighborhoods is uh, evolving over time. And selectively, those African-Americans, when desegregation enters in and opportunities to move out of uh, ghetto neighborhoods in in the central city open up for people the people who avail themselves of those opportunities are gonna be the most resourceful, the most ambitious, the, the, the hardest working, the most talented, the people who have the most going for them. So the consequence is that the residuum uh, in many uh, urban areas of families and individuals who have not moved and who have uh, stuck, uh, stuck through it uh, is, is, a, is a less resourceful and, and, and less uh, effective, population. And hence, yes, when is going to see uh, Harlem not looking the same in uh, 1995 as it looked in 1945, in part because the people are a selective uh, draw on the overall uh, original population, things like that. But but um, I think a lot, uh, Tom makes the point, he says, look at when African American progress actually took place. He said between 1940 and in 1970, you had a, a, a big you know upward uh, shift in the population. After 1970, you see a, a bit of a stagnation, and you know most of the change between 1940 and 1970 was happening before civil rights laws even uh, came uh, into into play. Uh, so it can't only be that civil rights advocacy is the is the sole path to uh, the empowerment of African Americans, or for that matter, taking the point more broadly, that government activity is the soul or even the primary instrument of solving the problems of Black Americans. I, I respect that view greatly.
0: Just connected to that, I mean, one of the things that I've heard um, your colleague John McWhorter raise, which is the war on drugs as a factor in kind of tr- creating barriers for people to, to rise out of uh, those kinds of neighborhoods. What, what's your assessment of that kind of that factor?
1: I, I think it's a factor. I don't know if John over emphasizes it or not. Um, but in, you know, uh, I, I think I just said in response to something you said earlier that I don't think the prisons are mainly full of, of nonviolent drug offenders. But the war on drugs is certainly an important element, especially if you look historically at the uptrend in incarceration in the US after 1980, uh, the Reagan war on drug policy uh, being implemented and so on. It's certainly a factor. It's certainly a factor. And it's a deeply problematic issue, it seems to me, and Libertarian I assume would, would, under, would appreciate this point, which is that uh, the organization of the dark commerce, of the illicit commerce and transacting in these substances, is bound to draw into the lower ranks of uh, labor supply people whose alternative options are the least. Okay, They're the ones whose the opportunity cost of their time is less. The willingness to take the risk associated with engaging in retail drug trafficking will be greater among a population who don't have uh, very uh, positive alternative ways of uh, trying to pursue a livelihood. So you should expect that low income people and in urban areas disproportionately minor- racial minority people are going to be overrepresented on the supply side at the lowest level of retail trafficking, if you have an enforcement regime that fixates on finding people engaged in those uh, retail transactions and uh, sweeping them up, a couple of things are going to happen. You're going to fill up your jails with people who are Black and brown and poor, and you're going to draw down uh, replacement workers from the housing projects and the tenements and the and the uh, uh, backwater areas of society to take their place because basically you got an infinite supply of labor to this particular task at a relatively low wage. So now the problem is a problem of society. It's it the, the demand for drugs is not concentrated in the low income and minority districts. The demand for drugs is about the hedonistic pursuits of titillation and, and distraction and entertainment and compulsive uh, consumption and whatever that is characteristic of the society as a whole. And yet the punitive weight of attempting to tamp down that traffic will be falling vastly disproportionately on the least advantaged people in the society who will be overly uh, represented by people from from racial minority communities. This is predictable. It's also tragic. And you could argue whether or not it's deeply unjust. We balance our cultural budget, don't use cocaine, don't use heroin, don't use methamphetamine, on the backs of the people who have the least options of what to do with their times, even as the driving engine for the whole commerce is people with $100 bills prepared to pass them over for small packets of illicit substances so they can get high. So, so I you know, I uh, agree with John that the war on drugs is a, is, is a problem. Whether it's the problem or the only problem or the main problem, if we could only fix that, we'd have the problem fix. I'm not sure I'm so sanguine, but, but it certainly raises uh, many of these uh, issues of racial injustice. I do think so, yes.
2: Can I ask a brief follow up on that, which is I think of the war on drugs partly as it incentivizes and makes it seem like violence pays. So it's not just nonviolent people, but it, it because of how much money flows into the whole trade, it makes it seem attractive to violent people as well and encourages that. So that's one that, so I don't think of it only as it's about nonviolent crime. And the second is what role do you think minimum wage laws plays in um, driving people into this?
1: Okay, oh, and that is in a way an empirical question. And I must say that I don't know from a kind of scientific point of view whether there are studies and good data supporting the claim that um, the uh, war on drugs, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, that the presence of minimum wage laws increases the supply of people into illicit activities. Certainly, it follows from basic price theory that that's the kind of thing that you would expect to happen. Uh, I'm against minimum wage laws, but I know that I'm a voice of being. So I mean, and it's just basic economics 101. What am I doing with a minimum wage law? I'm keeping somebody whose labor is worth $10 an hour from being able to sell their labor to an employer to whom it's worth $11 an hour because the minimum wage is $15 an hour. And I just made that transaction impossible to take place. Well, I did perhaps raise the wages of some people whom the employer is willing to employ at $15 an hour. But I also made it impossible for many, many people whose labor is not worth $15 an hour to find work. Uh, I had an alternative, which was to subsidize the wages of anybody who finds work. And if I think that uh, I wanna give them uh, $2 an hour of additional wage for every $10 that they make or whatever it is, I could have always done that. I didn't have to make it impossible for an employer and a worker to agree or not to a, a particular contract. Those, those were not the only options to raising the, the amount of money that was going into the worker's household. So, so I, I mean, when I find economists, respectably economists like Paul Krugman in his column extolling the minimum wage, I cringe. And I, I feel like it's almost in some ways a betrayal of what we, it's a very political stance. Now, it's popular. It's popular with the Democratic Party. It's popular with a lot of people, I assume, who vote Republican as well. They, they think they, they fall for this fallacy that you can change the value of something by, uh, by fiat. Uh, and and you, you, you haven't made that worker any more productive by pronouncing, uh, by by uh, you know, uh, by by issuing a law or a statute that uh, uh, eliminates the possibility of them trading, etc. So I'll be repeating myself if I continue in that vein. But to the extent that the minimum wage law in in, in makes it harder for low-skilled people to find employment, it is extremely plausible that it abets their Offering up their time to other activities which we would perhaps have them not undertake.
0: I wanted to go back to something you raised earlier, which is this idea of developing human potential and, and sort of the role of chosen behaviors um, in certain communities and what that role has. So, you know, I'm thinking back to, um, I'm sure you know Tanahasi Coates' article from about five, six years ago, The Case for Reparations in the Atlantic. I do know. Yeah. Uh, and thinking back to that, I mean, he makes one sort of glancing, uh, unserious um, acknowledgement of this kind of arg- argument that there's sort of cultural factors at play. And it just, it's just sort of continues on with his argument about other things. Now, leaving aside the, sort of the crux of his argument, to me, what was really striking about that is, there's there seems to be more to say about the issue of culture than he will admit to or that he was willing to entertain. I mean, um, so I'm interested in both your understanding of what what are some of the elements of this view of what is going on in sort of the cultural dynamics? And then why is it not more discussed? Why is it sort of peripheral to the major conversation?
1: Well, I mean, people want not to be quote unquote blaming the victim. And uh, they think that you're saying there's something wrong with Black people. If you say, uh, I remember seeing Colts, this would have been, I don't know when exactly, maybe 2015. Um, and in a debate with Mitch Landrew, the former mayor of New Orleans uh, at the Aspen Ideas Festival um, out of Colorado. And um, Landrew had brought uh, to a stage prop with him, which were these uh, books, these binder uh, notebooks, which had uh, leaf, loose leaf files in them, uh, which he called the books of the dead because they were the open homicide cases that the New, York, New Orleans Police Department continued to confront. And all, basically all the victims were Black. and all, Basically all the suspects were Black. And Landry was saying to Colts, well, look at uh, you know, I think black lives matter. And I, I, I think this is a really fundamental issue for society. But if we don't do something about the violent behavior in these communities, how are we gonna do that? We have to confront it. And Colts' response was a dismiss Landry with the back of his hand and say something like, nearly a quote here: there's nothing wrong with black people that ending white supremacy wouldn't fix. And I took that to mean a couple of things. One of them was, don't try to change the subject, this is Coates, to Landrew. You want to talk about Black people, I want to talk about white supremacy. Okay, uh, But the other one was, if you see any difficulties with Black people, it's because of white supremacy. Maybe not white supremacy today, but white supremacy at some previous point in time. Uh, to which I have two responses, one is, most of the people living in the communities that Landrew was calling attention to are not committing violent crimes. They're being preyed upon by people who are committing violent crimes. I'm not changing the subject. The subject was, what fosters the quality of Black life? I'm addressing myself directly to that subject. That would have been my answer. Uh, but the other thing that I thought was, oh, white supremacy is responsible for the way that Black people live? It's responsible for whether or not uh, enough adolescent males have sufficient uh, uh, self-regulatory cognitive and emotional equipment that they can forbear pulling out a pistol and blowing out the brains of somebody whom they had uh, an argument or a spat. That's white supremacy. What have you done to Black people when you've taken the position that even the most aberrant and deleterious patterns of behavior to be observed among us, and everybody can see what the homicide rate is in New Orleans and every other city in American society, that even the most deleterious uh, patterns of behavior that are to be observed among us are the consequences of what white people did or didn't do, either now or at some point in the past. Where is the agency of the African-American population, notwithstanding the exigencies of racism and white supremacy, to foster in our children ways of living that affirm the value of life? We are in control of that. We're not in control of everything, but we are certainly in control of that. So um, that's my response to you. Culture is complicated. It is not something that is indicative of the essential worth of any people. And it's not something that takes place disconnected from economy, politics, history, or whatever. But ways of living in communities are, um, to a great degree, susceptible to being shaped by the actions of the people who live in those communities. And in defense of this position, that we don't have to simply accept the violent behavior of a relatively few young black men, I'm talking about homicide as the particular example, other examples could be given. In defense of this position, that agency and proactive uh, developments within our communities to respond to the things that we see that are wrong around us. And now I'm talking about how children are being raised and what values are promoted. In defense of the position that you must not ascribe everything you see that's problematic in Black communities to white supremacy, I offer up the fact of African-American protest, resistance, and struggle over the long course of our sojourn in America. We were not, notwithstanding the exigencies and the the, uh, the deprivation uh, and the degradation uh, of uh, Jim Crow inhibited from fostering an active resistance that ultimately led to the Civil Rights Movement. That was an expression of African-American agency. History didn't determine how we responded to oppression. Historical oppression did not dictate how we responded to oppression. It left open the possibility of protest, resistance, and struggle. And I only say, let us continue to protest, resist, and struggle, but let us direct our attention to the sites where Reform is actually essential if we're going to increase the improve the quality of African American life, and that's not white like people sitting behind a desk at an editorial board somewhere. It's black people raising our children, educating our children, starting our businesses, taking care of our uh, business on our uh, in our own communities and in our own lives. That kind of I know that that's a speech. It is a sermon in a way. It, it's not exactly a policy program, but I think as a as a formula for how to live well. It vastly dominates uh, the uh, line that uh, Tanahashi Coates takes, which leaves us no place to go. Leaves us appealing to people for whom we've already declared they have no essential interest in our well-being.
2: Um, some somewhat related to that of the kind of forces that are. You said, I think you said something like culture is a complicated thing, the, of the forces that work. For education, and if we look first at primary, secondary school education, you brought up a little bit earlier talking about the ghettos and that when people are moving out, it's going to be the more active, the person who has more thinks of themselves, that I have agency, I can do something about my fate, move out, and you leave behind people who have that, less of that mentality. How much do you think that education, that the schools then in these local communities play a role. I'm Canadian and one of the things that I was surprised last shocked about the US in coming here is the disparity in high schools and grade schools of, of public schools that in different neighborhoods and different locales, just the quality of the education of the teachers, it's very noticeable in, in comparison to Canada. And how much of a role does that play? And you asked about some policy kinds of things, the charter school movement and for more freedom and choice in education, what kind of role do you think that could play in in the the kind of cultural issues?
1: I think it's a big deal. I agree with you. And this can be said without regard to race that the variation across school districts in the resources available for the development of intellectual potential of young people is substantial here, and I don't know Canada at all well, but I'm not surprised to hear that it's uh, shocking to see what you see in the United States because it is substantial. Uh, and it's partly money, but it's not all about money. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with the way that the, this industry is regulated and uh, the uh, industry and in inverted commas, if you like, people don't like to think about me as you know commodifying this, but in effect, uh, on the supply side, you basically have a, a monopoly. Uh, uh, on uh, public education, uh, sustained by the power of, uh, you know, a labor organization. I'm talking about the National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers, who protect the interests of their of their uh, incumbent employees against the potential competition uh, from other sources, including from uh, the charter school movement, of which I am an enthusiastic supporter. Recognizing that all charter schools are not created equal, and some are much more effective than, than others are. Uh, let a thousand flowers bloom, I want to say. Um, the kids don't belong to the union. Uh, the union is supposed to be working for the kids and not the other way around. Um, you're not entitled to f- uh, public money uh, if you're not able to meet a, a test, a, a minimal test of uh, providing uh, the services in question uh, effectively uh, in comparison to what alternatives are available. Um, I mean, I, I think it's a scandalous. I'm with Milton Friedman on this. I mean, this is going all the way back. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's, it's scandalous that we accommodate a system where I pick up and move to the town over, uh, and I'm prepared to pay the premium on the property in order to avail my children of a better school. But people who don't have the resources that I have to either purchase their education for their children from the private sector or from uh, parochial or whatever, or to move themselves around to find a public provision that's adequate, who don't have my resources, are basically locked in. Uh, that's that's scandalous. Uh, so um, I'm, I'm a big advocate of, of reforming education. I don't think it's a panacea, but I do think it's an essential uh, first step, especially for the, these kids in the least effective uh, uh, public school systems in the big cities, um, they, they deserve uh, the um, alternative option of being able to find better services for their children.
0: Speaking of education, I wanted to turn to sort of your perspective on this as an academic. So both, I know you've taught classes on race in America, and I'm interested in of the perspectives of the students you get in your classes, because, you know, from the outside, there's, it's easy to get the impression or some people would would like us to have the impression that students, once they get to college, they're all sort of in lockstep committed to the so-called woke perspective and this sort of a um, uniformity of belief. Now, it, that might be among academics, I don't know, but I'm curious if, if that's your view of the students you encounter in your classes.
1: This deserves more systematic study than I've 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 given it. I mean, I'm only going to give you impressions and mm-hmm. anecdotes, uh, but I think there's a lot more open mindedness and um, you know thoughtfulness among students than we sometimes give credit for. But I think that the environment of political correctness, cancel culture, and you know, tweeting out, you know, I can't believe this guy's a racist kind of thing is stultifying, And so I, I think people are very reluctant to say what they're actually thinking. There's a big difference, for example. I mean, we just talked about a lot of different things. Who's in prison? I say, no, it's not mainly, uh, you know, uh, nonviolent drug offenders. It's mainly miscreants who are making life impossible for people who share the neighborhood with them. That's very controversial. I say, the cops do have problems in certain circumstances, but on the whole, the, the cops are our, our friend. They're there to uh, create an environment of uh, security and the person and property of others, uh, which is a precondition, a necessary precondition for commerce or for, for, uh, for, for private life to flourish, uh, and so on. These are obviously controversial positions. In class, I'll say these things, five hands will go up Rebutting what I've said, and no hand will go up saying, "Oh, I agree with you." And moreover, I would offer the following example. But then, during office hours, five people will come around and say, "Professor Lowry, you know the thing that you were saying. I mean, can you say a little bit more about that?" I was actually challenged by that because I've always thought, but your your argument actually makes a little bit of sense. And how am They don't want to say it out in class because they don't want to be marked as a kid who's not, you know, woke and not uh, with the current uh, zeitgeist. how everybody is supposed to think but they're not stupid people. These young people at places like Brown University, they are very thoughtful, creative, interesting, you know, uh, 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 individuals, many, many of them. I don't, in other words, think it's as bad as it looks.
2: Uh, again, a follow up to that is for people to be willing to speak out more, do you think the faculty needs to lead that and one of the reasons I asked this I don't know if you followed the Brett Weinstein case at Evergreen at Evergreen yeah that's years ago now but yeah yeah but I think part of what he relates is exactly this about faculty that faculty wouldn't speak out in public in support of him but he would get private emails and things like that and it so the question is how much are the students picking up this is the whole environment of the university. And if the faculty would lead more on this, more students would be willing to put out, say, I mean, to put out that, yeah, I do not agree necessarily with this whole woke sensibility, as you put it. I, I think the faculty
1: bear a major responsibility for the quality of intellectual life in an institution like the university. Um, and I, 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 I'm sympathetic, uh, on card to the view that Um, uh, we're we're letting our kids down uh, if we don't have robust argument. Now, I'm not asking everybody to agree with me. I mean, it's a certainty that everybody is not going to agree with me. But um, I should not be the only person at Brown University objecting when the president of the university sends around a letter after the George Floyd incident that basically spouts the Black Lives Matter line on what's going on in America and how George Floyd is the Emmett Till of the 21st century. Emmett Till having been lynched in the south of America of the United States in the 1950s famously so his mother had him buried with an open coffin so that everyone could see what had been done to her boy it was a horrible horrible crime he was murdered by racist in I don't know Mississippi or Alabama in 1955 or something like that Uh, and uh the president of my university in a letter signed by the provost, by the dean of the faculty, by the dean of the School of Public Health, by the general counsel, by the uh, person who manages the university's endowment, financial manager of the university's endowment, uh, by uh, the vice president for this, et cetera, by 40 dignitaries at the top of the administrative hierarchy of our university endorsing a political letter that basically said, this is Brown University and this is what we believe in. And what we believe in is the woke mantra about uh, 300 years of racism and white supremacy and whatnot. Whereas, Whereas from my point of view, I was wondering, what will I say to my students next semester when we have to discuss this case in my race and inequality class?
2: The university's
1: administrative hierarchy have declared with a single voice that there's really only one way that decent people think about these problems. How can I teach them anything? Other than that, without marking myself as somebody who's uh, on the wrong side of history, moreover, who would speak up against the line that the president of the university has pronounced as the only decent way to respond to these contentious issues,
2: having been
1: uh, barraged by this uh, letter sent out to thousands of people in our community announcing what brown values actually are. Um, I was infuriated by that act by the president of my university. Because it abdicated our responsibility to think the problem through with our students. And it simply jumped on a bandwagon. It, it, it jumped on the, 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 the crowd. It, it joined and waved a banner, waved a banner when it uh, ought to have been inviting us to a table to think it through, to argue it through. Um, so uh, I think our faculty in many places, not every university, there is some variation, but not, not enough. Um, are, um, are themselves caught up in the sway of the the mass. Uh, what does uh, Douglas Murray call it? The madness of crowds. So they they're, they're caught up in the they're caught up in the sway of of the of the surge of uh, sentiment, um, and are not keeping enough uh, distance and enough kind of calm, objective, critical, analytic uh, posture. Uh, vis-a-vis these events. They want to be on the right side of history. That's the wrong thing to be wanting to do if you're running a university. Appreciate your
0: making the time. I want to be respectful and, and sort of let you go so you get on with your day, but really appreciate the
1: conversation. It's good to talk to you both.
2: Yeah, thanks very much, Glenn. Thanks so much, Bye. Glenn. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts.
1: This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org
2: forward slash membership.